Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we chat with Adam Conover, host of the True TV series, Adam Ruins Everything. He breaks down what is fact and what is fiction from the myth of poisoned Halloween candy to the origins of our cultural obsession with bacon. What happened was, in the 80s, the head of the pork board was literally hanging out with the head of Carl's Jr. and said, hey, could you come up with, like, a bacon sandwich or something? And they launched the first fast food bacon hamburger. And so, you know, these marketing decisions can have an influence on our culture even when we don't realize that marketing is involved. Suddenly, bacon's on menus, right? And you're eating more bacon without even realizing you're eating more bacon. Also coming up, we whip up a creamy Andalusian tomato and bread soup. And we talked to Adam Gopnik about what makes the perfect meal. But first, it's my interview with David Burka, actor, entertainer, and chef. His new book, Life is a Party, is a step-by-step guide to turning a party into an event. David, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, man. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, I just want to point out three differences between the two of us at the outset. Uh, You're a lot younger. Uh, You're a whole lot better looking than I am. Uh, You actually look good in a lampshade, I noticed, in your book. Uh, uh, And you also love parties. You know, Life is a Party is the name of your book. Um, 
We don't have anything in common is what you're saying. Well, we're going to we're going to spend a little time trying to find common ground. You, you, if I wrote a book about parties, I would say life is brutish and short. You know, that would be kind of my <laughs> that's how much work you have to do here. So so before we get to parties, let's talk about theater. Uh, what what is it, you know, about doing a musical? I don't know that I would find really surprising. What 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 is that life like? You have to live your life as a monk. It really is so grueling on your body and your voice and your time and your sleep. You have no weekend. Sometimes your day off is Monday and usually you're trying to just catch up with with normal things, laundry and bills. And and so you really have to make sure that you're going to sleep at night and you're saving your voice and you're stretching your body. And it's it's a grueling ruling week on your body and that's just one week is you know eight shows a week is no joke my uh, my wife and i've worked together actually in the same company for many years and you're married to someone who's also an actor is it hard for you to be married to someone in the same profession uh is, is that difficult or not yeah you know there's i can't i can't say that it's all amazing and awesome you know we are two dudes and we are similar and you know he definitely he has a different trajectory than I do his career has been going on since he's 15 and I've definitely taken a step back from my acting career because I focused on our kids and that's why I started really cooking a lot more because I was able to work on a cookbook I was able to do more TV and stuff during the day when I was in New York City and then be there for them when they get home from school so I said you know what when the kids are older and they go to camp and they're, you know, they're not wanting to be around me anymore. And then I'll, I'll go back to acting and stuff. But, um, but yeah, sometimes it's tough with, with, with Neil and I, but, you know, I'm very supportive of what he does and I'm the, I'm the hugest fan of, of his career and, and I'm, I couldn't be happier for him. You, you also, you mentioned, uh, I don't know how to put this delicately, lying to your children, which I do, of course, about their food. You say when they were two or three, they make gravy. It wasn't so good. We had to say, wow, this gravy with banana and cumin is fantastic. <laughs> so so when it comes to food, it's okay. Uh, white lies are okay, right? You never want to not take something from a kid, you know, especially when they're, you know, from three to six. You know, anything that they're going to do in the kitchen is, I, I'm all for it. Uh, okay, parties. So, uh, parties. Let's party. Well, first of all, here's where we agree. You said in your book, you should always offer your guests a drink upon arrival. And that is yeah. my keynote point of view. I want to, I want to get a drink into the hand of a guest and probably oh, good. a so chair. So we do have some things in so, common. So we can start with that as common ground. So g- give me a, a checklist of four or five things that you think about that I never would, of course, in terms of giving a party that you think are really critical. I think um, I, I think about what I can do the night before or the, the couple days ahead. Um, I think about things that I can source out, like so I don't have to be cooking everything. I have a checklist of, of of things that guests can do to be involved because you know most people when they come into a party they say what can I do, and so I like to put my my guests to work. <laughs> Not only are they doing the work for me, but in they're they're feeling a part of it. I like to have an activity after a party. I think it's nice to keep the party going. I also like to give something uh, for them to take home. I mean, adults like goodie bags too. It's not just kids. 
Uh, you have some rules about how to seat people at the table. Uh, your line is if they sleep together, don't sit them together. Uh, nah, yeah. Stack the cell phones in the middle of the table. So h- how do you encourage people to actually have interesting conversations, which seems to me to be the essence of a good dinner party? Well, I like to sit all of the extroverts in the center of the table. So it sort of draws all of the attention into the center. And the more introverts are on the side or by the host, so they feel a little more safe. Um, a really fun trick I like to do, there are these table topics. It's a game that was put out and all these different amazing questions that are conversation starters. I like to slip one of those under people's plates or their placemats because in the middle of the dinner if there's a there's a heated moment or there's a lull in conversation you can just pull that out and say oh if you had any superpower what superpower would you be what would you have and then everybody else has to go around the table telling what superpower they would want to have you, you do a do-it-yourself soda bar, which I really liked a lot. And you had some interesting cocktails, oh, yeah. like a lily and apricot cocktail, herb and celery cocktail. Could you talk about that? Because I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think it's always nice to have a, a signature cocktail with your party. I, I think to have one specialty cocktail is always great. And you know what? Also doing them in batches and doing them in punches are really great because then you can only – you do it once and then that's it. And then when it's run out – too bad. You can go to beer and wine. So I'm giving a, let's say I'm giving a party for whatever reason. Things are not going well. It's not taking off. The energy's low. Um, I'm sure you've given a party where you had to get things sort of jump started. What do you do? Uh, you know, I just, you know, I, I try to serve as many cocktails as possible. <laughs> um, one year, my mom, she was making um, beef Wellington and she burned it so bad that it was, Dinner was ruined. And so my grandmother got everybody in the kitchen and she had everyone do Goldschlager shots just to get, her to get through dinner. So that's always a, that's okay. a, just drink heavily. Drink heavily. <laughs> that's always a tactic. Yeah, uh, Halloween's big for you. And you have some great pictures Huge. in the book. Uh, you and Neil Patrick Harris, your kids. Tin Man and the Scarecrow, Captain Hook and Peter Pan. I love Tweedledum and Tweedledee. That was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. That was like off the cuff. That happened that was great. in two days. So let's talk about Halloween, if you would. Well, you know, I, I was always a big Halloween fan. I loved dressing up and I loved uh, celebrating. And then when I met Neil, I, I didn't realize how someone could be that into Halloween. I mean, he is just the Halloween man, you know? And so we started doing these big um, haunted houses in our house in Sherman Oaks when we were living in LA. And we would do a blowout Halloween party with performers and zombie waiters and, and, and the amount of food. Like one year I had a whole cadaver on the, on the table (laughs) where it was a, a messed up ghoul prop face. And then I did pork, sausage as intestines, beef ribs as giant uh, human ribs, and then pulled pork in the center as their guts. And then I had barbecue sauce all over it. And it looked like a huge, you know, medical lab. And that was that was really fun. So people could sort of make their own barbecue through <laughs> through a dead body. And, you know, we started dressing up as a family. You know, our first costume as a family was uh, we did Peter Pan and Captain Hook and Tinkerbell and Smee. And then from there, we're like, oh, well, let's do another family costume next year. We did you know, the Wizard of Oz. And then people started 
really coming onto it. Like, oh my God, I'm looking for the looking forward to the picture, and now it's become pressure, and then then mm-hmm. we're having to outdo ourselves every year. So we're. I, I wonder how long this is going to be because the kids are going to say, I'm not doing that anymore. David Burke, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for being on Milk Street. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was David Burka. His new book is called Life is a Party. It's time for my co-host Sarah Moulton and I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, what's going on? I'm here with you, Chris. So you and I grew up roughly the same time, late 60s, 70s. We were both hippies in our day. My question is, did you have real street cred as a hippie, or were you just sort of skating the surface? What do you mean by street cred? If you have to ask me what I mean by street cred, you don't have street cred. Did I do all those alternative things that hippies did? Yes. Did you live in a commune? Uh, No, I lived with a couple of other women. I wore overalls. I was a feminist. I'm still a feminist. And I ate vegetarian food only. And you listen to Grateful Dead? No, not that. Okay. Time to open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Dave in Rochester, New York. I have a question concerning chicken salad. It seems that when I make chicken salad at home, everything in it turns out great except the chicken itself, which seems to always be relatively flavorless and kind of bland. Yeah. And I'm just wondering whether there's some way I can imbue some flavor into it to make it sure. a little bit more chickeny. Yeah, I just did this last Saturday. I was making a chicken salad with a bunch of ingredients, but I had to poach a bunch of boneless, skinless chicken breasts, five of them, start in cold mm-hmm. water to cover, use a cup of inexpensive soy sauce from the supermarket. Obviously, it's salty, so it's sort of a brine. I threw in a bunch of leeks that I chopped up and a little, you know, a whole thing of ginger I chopped into pieces, didn't even peel it, bring it up to a simmer, put the top on, and walk away. And then after half an hour, 40 minutes or so, it'll come up to 160 to 165, take it out, and now you have flavored chicken. If you don't have soy sauce, you could use an inexpensive sherry. In China, they use Shaoxing wine, which is similar to that. That sounds like a really great idea. I didn't think of that. It's kind of like a sous vide in that you can't really overcook it because you turn the heat off after it comes to a simmer. Chris, I just want to say, I don't think you said the first time you turned it off. You bring it up to center, you turn it off and cover it and take it off the heat and let it sit. Yeah, Uh, we want to make that point. Bring it to simmer, take it off the heat, turn off the heat, cover it. Yeah. I want to throw out one other idea, which is because you want it to be more chickeny. How about getting store-bought chicken broth or even your own homemade, if you ever do that, and use that as your liquid. Yeah. What I would do after you take the chicken out is boil that stock just to make sure you got, you know, killed it. I mean, I'm sure there's nothing in there, but give it a quick boil, and then you can reuse that stock. You'll probably want to strain it because there'll be some protein solids from the chicken. But I think that's how you get the most chickeny of chicken is to start with poach it in chicken broth. I was wondering if as an alternative... Uh, roasting the chicken, like use uh, bone-in, skin-on chicken breasts and roast them? Would that give it more flavor? Sure. Yeah, I just find it easier to throw out water, and that's a simple method. You don't have to turn the oven on, but sure, that would work right. great. Yeah. 
And make sure you butterfly, a.k.a. spatchcock the chicken. Just take the backbone out and flatten it and roast it that way. Right. That you way, did a whole breast, yeah. I never roast a right. chicken without doing that. It means the dark meat and the white meat get Cooks cooked evenly. Cooks at the same time. So either roast it, spatchcocked, or poach it in a flavorful liquid or in chicken broth. And then take it off the stove and let it sit till it comes up to 165? Yeah, it'll take half an hour, 40 minutes, depending on the thickness right. and size of the breast. But yeah, Great. it does it slowly, so you don't have to... You know, check it every two minutes. Right. Well, that sounds very helpful. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming. the information. All yeah. right. Take care. Thanks, Dave. Take care now. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Albert Blakey. Hi, Albert. Where are you calling from? York, Pennsylvania. How can we help you today? Well, the question had to do with, would low-temperature grilling help with the grilling of whole fish? Because among the many things my wife and I agree on, we love a whole fish grilled, it's succulent, but it has nice, beautiful, crispy skin attached to the fish when you serve it. And time and again, as I'm trying to grill a fish, when I go to turn it, the skin sticks to the grill. And I rip the skin right off and, you know, continue to cook something that tastes good, but uh, <laughs> doesn't look as good. No, that's, 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 that's depressing. Familiar. Do you pat the fish very, very dry? Yes. Do you preheat the grill like crazy? Yes. One of the questions, though, is what temperature should you cook the fish on? And I think it's a good question about whether a low to medium heat for a whole fish, well-oiled on a perfectly clean grill, would mean it would stick less than if you got it on a pretty hot grill. Right. I don't know the answer to that. My guess is that's probably worth something testing. Are we going to ask Albert to go back to the grill? And try this out and try... Happy to. I mean, I would do what I just said for sure. But in terms of the actual temperature that you cook it at, I was going to say medium heat. Because what the fish has is the skin on it. And you want to get a sear. I found with chicken, if you put it over medium low, it'll take more time. But the skin gets beautifully crisped over time. Just because you're using medium low doesn't mean you don't get a crisp skin. You do. I would try medium low. And see if right. that releases better. And I would guess it would. So. Yeah, so Albert, will you try that out and let us know? Yeah. But either way, I say make sure the fish skin is dry and you oil it really well. I think there's one other thing, and that is the cleanliness of your grill grates. I've learned the hard way that when you're finished cooking, crank it up and clean the grill really right well then. right there. Because if you let it sit for a week and come back, right. <laughs> it's going to be a real mess. I've learned that over the years myself. And I am, I'm sort of a, an apprentice Jedi when it comes to grilling. I don't use a thermometer. I'm more of a trust the force loop kind of guy and see how it's looking and see how it's smelling and then, you know, decide, is there a temperature? You know, and does it vary with the fish? Yes. Blue fish is oily. And we love red snapper, for example. And, you know, does the density of yes, the fish true. flesh, I'm sure, has to have an effect. 120 in general is what I would look for. But if you have a fish like tuna steaks... Those will continue mm -hmm. to cook like crazy because they hold the heat when they come off. So I would cook those to a lower right. temperature. But I would say 115 to 120 is sort of where I would look for fish, something like that. And by the way, I think you ought to write the Jedi Grilling Cookbook, right? The Obi-Wan yes. Barbecue Handbook. Yes. May the grill force be with you. Yes. Albert, okay. take care. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thank Albert. you for your time. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. This is Mostly Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843.
or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Ashley Tucker calling from New York with a question about frosting layer cakes. That was the most succinct call yeah. you've ever had you get an a in, in the history of Milk Street. Caller. Okay, what's the question? <laughs> so my question is that I'm always surprised to find that recipes for layer cakes don't give much guidance on how much frosting to put between the layers right. and on the top layer so that you're sure that what you have left for the sides is a good amount for even frosting because often you don't know till you've served up that first place whether you've done a good job of balancing the amount of frosting between the layers and the outside. I was wondering if you have any advice for portioning out frosting or thoughts on why recipes kind of leave you on your own for this part. It's a good question. I was just frosted a birthday cake for a youngster recently, and I had the same conundrum. And so what I did was cheat on the filling. I mean, I was very, very circumspect about that because I wanted to have enough for the sides and top. So I underfrosted between the layers. I have on other occasions made 50% more frosting to start with. That's my favorite oh. answer because I love frosting. Some people. Some people, it's all about yeah. the cake. I'm right there with you, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. I love the frosting. So I, I would add 50% more to the original recipe for the frosting. That'll solve the problem. Well, you know, I think, first of all, people who don't tell you how much frosting and how much to put on each layer don't do a good job writing the recipe. If you look at serious, you know, authors, cookbook authors, they're going to tell you. I think make a lot more frosting because, you know, it's, you know, you know <laughs> what it's like? Plan. It's like pie pastry recipes are designed for professionals. So they never Mm -hmm. give you enough pie dough if you don't roll it out well. And so you're always left with, you know, one side that's a little short. So I always make, let's say for one pie, a cup and a half of flour, not a cup or a cup and a quarter. So I would do the same thing. I just make more. And be careful about the filling because that's where you can go crazy. The only other thing I would add is it's a really good idea to do that crumb coating thing. Yeah, that's good. Where you put a very thin layer on first and sort of let it set and then you go back and put more on. Well, that only works if it's a butter-based buttercream. Yeah. Right, because some of the other frostings are not going to get hard. They're not going to work, yeah. Like a meringue frosting. I like the more is better. What's the worst that could happen is you have leftover frosting? Yeah. Is that a problem? No, not remotely. But that's a very good question, though. I've, yes, Ashley. I have to say, Sarah also impugned my professional integrity because I'm thinking back to all those cake recipes I've written over the years. I don't think I ever said how much to put on each layer. No. No. Well, you really should. I know. Go back and do it now. I got to correct it before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just so surprising because bakers are so precise about everything else, and then you're sort of left to your own devices at the end to figure it That's out. That's an excellent point. And also, you get there, and the cake is perfect, and everything's ready to go, and you have your little cake decorating wheel thing, and, and then you go, oh, no. Now, I don't have enough. Now what? Now, now what? Yes. Ashley, that's an excellent question. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your help. Yeah, I appreciate it. Whatever help we gave you. Okay, take care. <laughs> take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with comedian Adam Conover. He's star of the TV show Adam Ruins Everything. That's right after the break. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Modern society is full of conventional wisdom that is, according to Adam Conover, dead wrong. Adam is the host and creator of the true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, which debunks what we think is true. He's also a comedian and the host of the new podcast, Factually. Adam, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I I know your show is called Adam Ruins Everything, but actually I found, I couldn't stop watching it, so quite the opposite. (laughs) I think it's... uh, it's entertaining, but it also uh, is fact-based, right? Yeah, it is, as much as it possibly can be. You know, we have a wonderful research and writing staff that fact-checks every segment that we do, that deep-dives into the research for about two weeks for every single episode that we do. We consult with experts from the fields that we're covering. You know, we're a comedy show, but we really, really do try to get it as right as humanly possible. So I started off by watching your first viral video called Millennials Don't Exist. And you were speaking to, I think, a trade industry group uh, of marketers. Yes, that was a... Yeah. Yes, that was a a marketing conference about uh, how to appeal to millennials. And they had various marketing gurus going up there and saying, oh, well, the millennials today like this and that. They like Facebook or whatever. And they asked me to speak. And I said, "Okay, but the the title of my talk is going to be (laughs) Millennials Don't Exist. And yeah, I did about a 20 minute talk about how this sort of division of people into different generations is completely arbitrary. Well, I, I think your point was they're people. And so you should sell to them as if they were, in fact, people, not millennials. Yes. So let, let, let's move on. There was a whole bunch of these videos. I really liked them uh, that I watched. And one of them that was really interesting was the issue of poison Halloween candy. Yeah, I mean, this is a recurring panic that is a sort of press fad that comes back every year. Could there be a razor blade hiding in the apple? Tune in at 11 when, you know, on the nightly news when we tell you how to check your kids' candy. And it was really this sort of rote idea of, you know, safety culture, uh, make sure your kid wears a helmet and make sure you check their candy. The, The truth is that nobody has been poisoning kids candy right it there's no there's no cases of this happening the only cases that they ever found in which a 
kids' Halloween candy was poisoned or had a razor, you know, or was, you know, doctored in any way. It was actually done by a family member, which is, you know, obviously even more upsetting. But the idea that random strangers in their houses are trying to hurt children in this way, the fact is it's simply never occurred. (laughs) Well, that puts that one to rest. Um, Next thing you say is low-fat foods make you fatter. And my question is, isn't it true and actually a fact that saturated fats do potentially cause health issues? Isn't that true? Oh, of course they do. And that se- that segment is actually one that we're going to be treating again in an upcoming episode that we have, another correction segment, because we sort of depict that there are these two scientists, Ansel Keys and John Yudkin. And Ansel right. Keys was the king of the sort of anti-fat crusader scientists in the 50s and 60s. And his research showed that fat contributed to heart disease and obesity predominantly, and that led to the anti-fat craze of the 80s, right, um, that that I grew up with, low-fat everything, right? Avoid dietary fat at all costs. That's the big Satan in our foods, right? And we also tell the story of this other scientist, John Yudkin, who was researching sugar, and he said, no, actually, sugar causes weight gain and heart disease and diabetes, and the sugar industry funded Ansel Keys or supported Ansel Keys and encouraged the you know, scientific community to bury John Yudkin's research. So that's the story that we told. In the years since we made that story, we concluded that the sort of just-so story about Ansel Keys and John Yudkin is a bit too simplified. But the fact remains that, yes, the sugar industry did really make a concerted effort to suppress anti-sugar research. The specific anti-fat fad that we had in the 80s was a mistake. And the reason is that all the low-fat foods, they would fill them up with sugar. And a lot of times they were extremely high-carb foods as well. And they were also highly processed foods. Oh, incredibly highly processed. And so, you know, that demonization of dietary fat was a mistake. Now, I would say that demonization of dietary sugar is probably also a mistake. And, you know, demonizing any one macronutrient is going to be a problem because these food companies are just going to reprocess and optimize their foods to be high in one thing and exclude another thing. Yeah, you also talk about detox diets and you point out that... The body uh, is has natural techniques, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs are getting rid of toxins, uh, yes. sw- sweating out toxins. Well, sweat's 99% water. You went through a whole list yeah. of things. Could you just do that very briefly? Because I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, of course. Uh, Well, toxins, the way that they're often used in wellness culture as a phrase, are not real things. You know, you imagine these little black particles in your body that are making you sick, but that's not real. There's no particular type of thing called a toxin. The truth is that any chemical, including natural chemicals, right, including what's in your food— can be toxic if you take too much of it. So, for instance, vitamin C is toxic if you pump it into your veins in a huge, huge way. There's tons of things that are toxic in your body all the time. Uh, That's the job of your internal organs to filter them out, and they do an excellent job of that. That's what your liver and kidneys do every second you're alive. The idea that you need to sweat out toxins, toxins don't come out through your sweat. That's not how you get rid of toxins. Uh, Adam ruins nachos. Uh... You talk about how changing your buying decisions about foods doesn't solve any world problems regarding foods. 
Yes. Well, that yeah, that's our big conclusion of that episode. I'm very proud of that episode. It's a really fun one. So what we do in that one is we talk about avocados, you know, the guacamole on the nachos, how uh, the avocado industry is run essentially by Mexican drug cartels. If you buy a Mexican avocado, <laughs> some of your money is going to Mexican cartels because after the U.S. really started clamping down on drug policy and we opened the borders for free trade, they started stepping on that industry as a way to make their money. And this is not a problem. Problem that we can individually solve by as consumers with our buying decisions. We have control over what we buy in the supermarket, right? We can buy product A instead of product B. We don't have individual control over what's available in the supermarket. And so many of the problems in our food system are on that level. They're problems of what food is grown, what food is distributed, what food is subsidized, and what food ends up on the shelves. And so a big part of my focus on the show, and we talk about this uh, across a number of different issues, is we focus way Way too much in America on individual choices. Oh, if I just buy some greener stuff and buy better food and make a better individual choice, and if we all did that, we'd live in a perfect world. Not true. It's not possible. Uh, that's not that's not the way the world actually works. Some problems are systemic and societal and require systemic and societal solutions, like you know, coming from our government. We need the USDA to step in. We need the FDA to step in. So obviously, bacon seems to have seized the upper hand in the last uh, few years. And you did a segment on on bacon or big bacon. And uh, where did you come out on that? everything's better with bacon, right? People put bacon on everything now. And that's both in high food culture and low food culture. You know, you got everything from, you know, bacon on hamburgers, bacon flavored chips to, you know, high cuisine pork belly everywhere, right? And the truth is that was the result of a concerted effort by the pork industry, (laughs) like, which is, uh, you know, makes sense once you think about it, but was sort of invisible to us at the time. What happened was in the 80s, again, there was that low fat craze, right? Low fat, low fat, low fat. And, you know, they were marketing pork as the other white meat and, you know, the, the low-fat uh, meat that you could get, less fatty than beef. And so they were left with all these fatty cuts of the pig, right? The pork belly. What do we do with it? The the head of the pork board was literally hanging out with the head of Carl's Jr. and said, hey, could you come up with, like, a bacon sandwich or something? And the guy literally says, I'll, I'll put, give them a sandwich of so much bacon it'll leave grease dripping down their chins. And they <laughs> launched the first, like, fast food bacon hamburger, and it was a huge hit. Um, and the result was it seeped into popular culture, and it became something that people just started spreading themselves, you know, like bacon is epic, epic bacon time. And so, you know, our show often covers how these marketing decisions can have an influence on our culture, even when we don't realize that marketing is involved, right? Suddenly bacon's on menus and you're eating more bacon without even realizing you're eating more bacon. Uh, again, that's a that's an example of how the systemic changes in our food system can change what we're eating, even when we don't know it. I'm just shocked, shocked. <laughs> the story it's a story as old as the food industry. Did you have a closely held belief about how the world works and either through your show or just through the process of getting older has that unsettled you? You've discovered something you really thought was true is not. You know, I've always loved finding out that something that I thought was true is not true. I created the show because That feeling that I always enjoyed, hey, if I can reproduce that feeling for other people, I think they might like what I do. And luckily, I was right about that. So, you know, there's plenty of things that I thought were true that I found out weren't through the process of doing the show. But, you know, for the most part, I welcome them. No, for the entire part, I welcome them. 
you come from a uh, family of scientists, botanists, biologists. I do. Uh, your sister has a PhD in particle physics, which is pretty serious. She sure does. Uh, so, are you sort of the entertainment value for the family, or are you yeah. are you viewed as being a core scientist along with the rest of them? You know, now that I have found my niche, sort of spreading true information, and and you know that you know my television show has a bibliography, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, initially I was the uh, sort of uh, black sheep of the family. I was still really interested in ideas and research and finding out the truth. But I always sort of knew that in comedy I could sort of work with ideas in the same way that I could inform and make people think more differently about issues. And yeah, I mean, luckily that's what I've been able to find a little a little hole for myself doing. Adam, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Chris. That was comedian and writer Adam Conover. His TV show is Adam Ruins Everything, and his podcast is called Factually. You know, it turns out there is nothing new about facts that turn out to be fiction. Nero did not fiddle as Rome burned. He was actually 30 miles away in Antium. And of course, the fiddle did not exist in 64 AD. Vikings never wore horns on their helmets. That famous Viking headgear was invented in 1876 for production of Wagner's The Ring. And a bit of history closer to home, pilgrims wore reds, greens, yellows, and purples, not black clothing. And by the way, they never put a buckle on a hat. So just when you think everything has been made up, you discover that Mary Sawyer did have a little lamb. Its fleece was as white as snow. And yes, it did follow her to school one day in 1817. I guess that Adam can't ruin everything. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Andalusian tomato and bread soup. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I'm annoyed today. I'm annoyed because going back to the 60s, everyone started making gazpacho. It was like sort of like guacamole, you know. And it turns out to be like V8 juice with some diced vegetables. <laughs> it was really awful. But there are other soups from Spain which actually are more interesting and I think better. And we're going to do one of those today. Yes, Chris, this is much more delicious than V8 with some vegetables in it, I promise you. This particular chilled tomato-based soup is called salmorejo, and it's similar to gazpacho in that, again, it's chilled, it has a tomato base, it's made with a few different vegetables, but it also has some really nice creamy richness, and that really comes from using good olive oil. So it's creamier, and what are the ingredients? How do you make it? Well, Chris, you want to start with two pounds of ripe tomatoes, and if you can find really great tomatoes, you have garden tomatoes, that's great, but for grocery store tomatoes, Campari tomatoes or cherry tomatoes tend to be pretty good year-round. So Campari are the ones that are like three times bigger than cherry tomatoes, but much smaller than a regular beefsteak. That's right, Chris. So you want to look for those in the grocery store. Two pounds of those. And then you actually use a little bit of white bread to thicken it. You want something that might have a crusty outside, but a softer interior. And we're actually only going to use the crumb here. We're not going to use the crust. And then there's also some red bell pepper, a little garlic, a little bit of sugar for sweetness, and some sherry vinegar for acidity and then a healthy dose of olive oil, as we mentioned before. So is there any cooking here, or is everything raw? There is no cooking, Chris. Everything is raw. Everything is sort of whipped together in the blender. The one kind of key when you're serving a chilled dish is, of course, you want to taste it before you chill it, but then you want to taste it again after you chill it because you'll likely need to add some more salt and pepper because flavors are kind of blunted, or rather your taste buds are blunted by the cold soup. And on top, do you serve it with something? 
very simple, but makes a big difference. You want to crisp up some prosciutto, so you have that nice mm. salty ham. You could also chop up some hard-boiled eggs or a little parsley for color. And then you want another little drizzle of the olive oil and a little bit more of that sherry vinegar. So I see we've kind of dressed it up by calling an Andalusian tomato and bread soup. In any case, it's a silky, rich, and raw soup that's great for summer. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Andalusian tomato and bread soup at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Adam Gopnik and I discuss how he came about the perfect meal after a lifetime of searching. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Where are you calling from? Los Angeles. Well, how can we help you? Well, I had called a little bit ago and we spoke about freezing yeast dough. Oh, yes. I remember that. I wanted to report back my results. Oh, yay. Well, can you fill in anybody who's listening about what your question was then? Yeah. So my question was about freezing a yeast dough. Like, do you need to add extra yeast? At what point do you freeze it? Do you freeze it right away? Let it proof once? Just kind of uh, whether the recipe needed to be modified, anything like that. Yeah, I think I said freeze it after the first rise, the proof. I think I agreed with you on that one. So what did you do? Yes. So I did not adjust the yeast at all for the recipe. I froze it after the first rise. And I will say I was a little nervous because it didn't exactly rise up. It didn't exactly double again when it came to room temperature. But it cooked up beautifully. Hmm. Oh, happy thing. I, I, I'm shocked. Let me just say this, that after we had a conversation, because I'm always paranoid. I, you know, there's all these things that plague you in life, keep you awake at night. <laughs> I went back and looked on the um, King Arthur Flower website to see what they said. And they mm-hmm. said, don't let it rise the first time. Shape it, freeze it. And then take it out and let it sit on the counter for about four hours till it thaws and doubles and then bake it. So that, that's now what I probably would have told you. <laughs> uh, I was telling you what I thought, you know, gut reaction. But uh, I, I'm glad you had good results anyway. So. Okay, so King Arthur Flowers said there's only one rise for the whole bread? Right. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Well, but this worked. 
yes. first rise, this works. freeze and, it. And I've yeah. done it multiple times. Good. Just oh, yeah. Made the recipe as is, let it rise, freeze it, let it thaw, cook it. And, and one more time, what kind of bread? Was this like a, a typical American bread or a European bread? It was a brioche. Oh, brioche. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, interesting. Got, well, it's got a lot of fat, so it yeah. probably worked pretty well. Yeah. Good for you. You're Good. fancy. It does seem to be a very forgiving recipe. Yeah. Thank you for letting us this report back. We like that. Especially when it yes, worked. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> thank you for all the solid advice over many, many listens. Okay, Ashley, Ashley, thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. This is Most Jet Radio. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Troy Burke. Hey, Troy. How are you? Where are you calling from? He's calling from Colorado Springs, Colorado. What can we do for you today? Uh, well, I had some questions for you guys. I was curious about aquafob. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. You can use it to make like a vegan mayo and things like that. I was curious of its uses as far as like a vegan hollandaise or if you can bake with it. It's got a lot of uses. We should say for starts because we just assume everybody knows what aquafaba is. It's the oddest thing on the planet that somebody discovered it, but it's the liquid that's left in a can of chickpeas that we used to all dump off and then rinse off the chickpeas to get rid of it. But it foams up like eggs. It's pretty neutral. It's just wonderful ingredient. Certainly you could use it for hollandaise in place of eggs. You could also use it in meringues. It's great meringues, and it's good in, in baking. Or chocolate mousse, for example. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It has many uses. It's just, it's the most exciting ingredient in terms of what it does. I mean, for me, the miracle is meringue. Bartenders use it. If they don't want to use rye whites in a recipe, shake it up and they get the foaminess they want without having something that's potentially a dangerous, dangerous yeah. ingredient. Yeah. Try two tablespoons of aquafaba per egg white. Mm-hmm. So if it's a recipe where you're whipping egg whites, that I think will work. Will work. Yeah, pretty yeah. well. Okay. That would be the, the more surefire substitute, I think. Right. And then awesome. some delicious cocktail, yeah. Yeah. which I want to go home and make. Troy, give that uh, a shot. Two tablespoons for one white is just a basic rule. Yes. Okay, yeah, and, and that could work in baking as an egg replacement yep. as well? Yes, three I, tablespoons. I think it's three tablespoons for, for one egg. egg. Yeah. yeah. Cool, yeah. I mean, I was curious, you know, as far as hollandaise, and then I've heard it for the mayo, and you said meringues. I've heard custards. Yes, and quiches. Puddings. Uh, yeah. Cool. It's really the miracle ingredient. Troy, take care. Thanks for calling. Yes. Hey, yeah, you too, guys. Bye. Bye bye. Now it's time for this week's culinary tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Esther, and here is my tip. Whether you cook rice in a rice cooker or on the stove, always start with cooking aromatics like minced garlic with a little bit of oil and salt. Once it's slightly softened, you can throw in your rice and water and you'll never have bland rice again. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Adam Gopnik.
Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? I, I'm ready. I, I need some philosophy. Well, let me try and throw some your way. <laughs> um, I have been searching my whole life, as you know, for the one perfect meal. And I have been playing around with it. And I have played with the roast chicken done in the French style and uh, lamb done in the Italian style. And I've even tried to toy with the conception that Thanksgiving dinner might actually be the peak meal, hard as that might be to believe. But I have now actually, after searching for the perfect meal all of my life, I have found it. Okay. Uh, where did I find it? You might ask Christopher. <laughs> and where did you find it? <laughs> I found it in Greece. We went on a family vacation to the beautiful island of Antiparos in Greece, um, which I hesitate to recommend because it will shortly be ruined by all the uh, uh, avaricious uh, Milk Street listeners, but it is an absolutely beautiful place. And while there, I had twice a day uh, for uh, almost two weeks exactly the same meal, a Greek salad consisting of uh, red pepper and tomato and cucumber and uh, olives and feta cheese, and a grilled fish, sometimes a sea bass, sometimes one of those mysterious Aegean fish that they give a name like snapper to that you know is not snapper, but is doubtless called by some 14-syllable Greek name that you would not understand (laughs) if they told you, accompanied always by lemon potatoes. Uh, And at the end of that meal, it just had some fresh fruit around. I had it for lunch, and then... Uh, pouring over the menu in the little simple cantinas where we were eating, I would have it again for dinner, and then I would have it for lunch, and then I would have it again for dinner, and on and on, and I was never bored Hmm. by this meal. Now, you know, Christopher, that I like fancy food. I like complicated food. I like a variety of food. But it became a family joke that I was completely addicted to this one meal over and over and over again. And do you know what? If I could have it uh, again tonight, I would have it again tonight. So much so that I flew back from there just yesterday, and I bought the ingredients, and I prepared it for my family. So so is this a function of the arc of your life and your taste changing, or is this because you found something poetic and infinite in lemon potatoes and grilled fish? Christopher, with your usual acuity, you have put your finger on exactly the question (laughs) I was going to ask you. Why was this so? Was it exactly because as I approach let's call it early middle age, Um, I finally have settled into that groove. Was I enchanted by the the light and the climate of the Aegean and this particular kind of food? Oh, and I should add, always accompanied by the local white wine from Paros, which is um, extremely good. Uh, Was it simply that in the classic way that we talk about terroir, this was a meal that was so perfectly suited to the terroir that it was uh, irresistible? Did it have something to do, perhaps, with what is still called the Mediterranean diet? I thought that might be it. I talk a lot about how our tastes are always changing, and whatever our current taste is, we call healthy. We call natural. It doesn't matter what it is historically. Whatever it is we like, we say, is the right way to eat. So I went online, as we all do these days when we're trying to get information, and I found one piece after another online saying, The Mediterranean diet is a myth. Six myths about the Mediterranean (laughs) diet. Ten myths about the Mediterranean (laughs) diet. Five more Mediterranean diet myths. It seems that from a scientific or at any rate nutritional point of view, that idea that was so widely spread that there was real virtue inherent in grilled fish and olive oil and the rest of it doesn't really have any proof, doesn't have any grounding. Like most stories about the magic connection between nutrition and longevity – 
it evaporates the longer that you look at it. So it doesn't seem to be that was what it was particularly. It does seem possible that it was something that was in tune with my, shall we call them, aging tastes, that as we age, we want things that have not neutrality, but clarity. And there's something unmatched about the clarity of flavor in that assemblage of flavors. It could be simply that, like um, St. John on Potmos, I had finally found my spiritual home and with it my spiritual meal. But can I give you my very specific guess about what it probably was? I'm on the edge of my seat because I can't think of it. <laughs> Go right ahead. Simplest thing in the world, olives and lemons. When, when I just say those words, olives and lemons, doesn't it give you a serene feeling when you just meditate on olives and lemons? Don't you immediately summon up a sense of a better life? I do, certainly. Well, as soon as you said Greek island, I was already sort of there. But yes, <laughs> that, that did help, you. Yeah. Yes, Greek island olives and lemons. And I mean it specifically. Olives and lemons, if you think about it, are um, kind of magical foods, if you think about them. <laughs> that amazing combination of those two essential tastes with olives of salt and sour. That uh, magic ability of a lemon to be something that is inedible in itself but makes everything it touched, like King Midas, suddenly become perfectly accented. I genuinely think that if you took the olives and lemons out of the dishes I've been describing, they would become extremely boring. They would become mere uh, peasant nutrition. I think that more virtue resides in olives and lemons than in any other part of the palate of cuisine. I think that's a T-shirt right there. I think that was... (laughs) A meme? Have I coined a meme, actually? Actually, you've stopped me in my tracks because I didn't think this is where you were headed with this. And you're right. Lemons in and of themselves are not a thing, but they're there to enhance other things. They're both at the service of of the palate in a way, right? Exactly. Lemons and olives are the self-sacrificing, altruistic elements on the platter. And they're so deeply, deeply embedded in the distant past, right? The founding myth of Athens involves the triumph of Athena with her olive tree over Poseidon with his thunderbolt. The olive is the oldest symbol we have, when we think about olive branches, of the peaceful possibilities of human existence and of the table. And I realized that if you took the olives out of the Greek salad, and if you took the lemon off of the Greek fish and potatoes, it would be, as I say, a tedious dish, not a thrilling one. So I ask you to join me in paying homage to those two simple but essential elements of our table, the olive and the lemon. If you put Adam Gopnik on a Greek island, you know he's going to reach back to Greek mythology. It's just, (laughs) it was inevitable now I think about it. Adam, a man who thinks while he eats. Thanks so much. Pleasure, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Earlier in the show, I spoke to David Burka, author of Life is a Party. Like the Grinch and Dr. Zeus, the first question I ask myself when I go to a party is, when can I leave? I think that fun, unlike most other things in life, should be spontaneous. In other words, I like having fun, but it's a lot more fun when I don't know when I'm going to have it. Or put another way, that's the fun of it. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find our recipes, our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. 
We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The music by Chubub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>